Welcome to the Finding Refuge podcast. My name is Michelle Cassandra Johnson. I am an author, yoga teacher, healer, social worker, dismantling racism trainer, activist, and grief worker. This podcast emerged from work based in the exploration of collective grief and liberation. It exists to remind us about all the ways we can find refuge during unsettling and uncertain times, and to remind us about the resilience and joy that comes from allowing ourselves to find refuge. I'm so excited to share this interview with you today. I interviewed Sid Yang, and I met Sid. We've never actually met in person, but we met online and in the ether several years ago. I was in a moment or period of my life where I was making big decisions and transitioning and making big moves, and Sid was very helpful and supportive to me as I decided what to do and how to move. So I'll tell you a little more about Sid now. Sid Yang uses they-them pronouns and is a mixed-race, Taiwanese-American, queer, non-binary healer, intuitive counselor, and writer who weaves together magic, possibility, and intention as an energy healer in the world through their practice, Blue Jaguar Healing Arts. As someone who lives with depression and anxiety and has recovered from severe eating disorders, Sid's work finds its resonance in the stories we each hold at the intersection of memory, body, sexuality, and mental health. Sid works primarily with queer and trans BIPOC individuals, as well as regularly leads workshops, community healing circles, and has been a group facilitator for over two decades, with a specific focus on grief, healing ancestral trauma, sexuality plus spirituality, body liberation, and eating disorder recovery. Their recent memoir release, A Bulimia Story, reimagines what recovery would look like without shame. Enjoy this interview. Sid offers some very potent and timely medicine. Hello, Sid. Hi, Michelle. I'm super excited that you said yes to spending time with me and being a guest on Finding Refuge. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. This is a treat. Yeah. Um, Very excited. And actually, right before we logged on for the interview, I went outside to take Jasper on a short walk. It's raining today, which he Mm -hmm. doesn't love. And a hawk, there's a neighborhood (laughs) hawk that's social with the crows. They like hang out. And I saw it fly and land. And then the crows went over and sat next to it. And I was like, oh, of course that just happened because (laughs) I'm going to talk to Sid. The bird magic is showing up. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So the birds are here with us and it's beautiful. I know it was so just felt perfect. And I don't remember how long ago I found you online, but I was in crisis looking for support and somehow found you on the internet and reached out. And later I found out that my friend Vivette, your friend Vivette too, knew you. And I was like, oh, of course, this was divine, like it was supposed <laughs> to happen. So I know you do many things in the world. And I would love for you to share some about who you are and what your work is, what your practice is. Yeah, thank you. And as we start, I would love to also share like right before I got on 
the call with you, I was also outside spending some time in my backyard, kind of grounding before our conversation. And on the other side of birds, I, I have a bird feeder. And so all these birds were up in the tree and I needed to fill it. And then I looked down on the ground and there's all these sprouts in the ground from all of the sunflower seeds that they had dropped. And just looking at like how those sprouts had just shown up overnight in a way. And I was thinking about just how birds are so connected to these cycles of life. And sometimes we don't even notice that life is happening underneath our feet or all around us. And that these like sprouts, they've just been growing. They're germinating underneath the soil, but the birds are creating this. They're like, you bring us the seeds, we're going to drop them. The soil is going to grow them. And then you're going to be blessed with all these sunflowers. Mm-hmm. And so I was sitting with that as we like came into this space together. And so I love that you have the hawks and the crows and now we have the sunflowers and the finches and and I think starting from that place of who am I is that <laughs> I think that's who I am that's <laughs> pretty much like encapsulated in there is a being who finds meaning or finds purpose and finds understanding of who I am in the world by looking at the natural world and the cycles and systems and relationships and roles and contradictions that exist. So hawks and crows aren't supposed to be friends. I used to watch them often in the sky, kind of like battling for space and agency, but to see that coming together is a contradiction. It's like, oh, here's this thing that shouldn't be, and yet it is. And so that principle of the impossible in a way, right? Over the impossible becoming possible has been the core of my own personal journey as somebody who has gone through really long and intense recovery and healing from eating disorders, as somebody who lives with depression and anxiety and other trauma and mental illness or mental, just mentalness, mm-hmm. <laughs> being human. And this way of what moves me through that, it has moved me through that is this idea that I can find the possible in the impossible. And that holding to that in my breath in my belief systems, in the ways that I just show up every single day has helped me create or form or germinate, (laughs) like to grow the seeds of a healing practice. So I work in the world as an energy healer and an intuitive counselor, and I work with individuals and small groups specifically around the ways that self-harm and eating disorders show up in our bodies. And I work specifically and primarily with queer and trans folks and folks of color. And looking at the ways that it's not our bodies that are at fault or have problems or are suffering from any form of pathology. It's that our bodies are whole and complete and trying to survive in a system that is creating that discomfort, disjointedness, disconnection in us. And how do marginalized bodies survive in systems, political systems, social systems, cultural systems that don't create space for, nor actually want our bodies to thrive, to be healthy, to be strong, to be visible, to be wise. And so I see the ways that self-harm and eating disorders are a response to that. Like it makes total sense. And so how do we hold each other and practice care at a very personal and radical way to create healing and to create spaces for justice and liberation for all of our bodies and all of our lived experiences. So I do that work. (laughs) That's a part of who I am in the world. And so much of that is rooted in my practice as a Buddhist, 
my practice as somebody connected to the natural world, as somebody who is mixed race. I'm Taiwanese. I have a white mom. I was raised here in California, in Southern California. So that already is a cultural framing of who I am. And I'm also a queer person and a trans person and a trans non-binary person. And the ways that informs how I move through the world or how I experience the world and myself and my body and others. And so I bring all of those pieces into this space and into this work and really believe that if we are committed to this idea of liberation for all bodies, for all people, for all of us, that at its core, the wound that we're healing is the wound of disconnection. And Mm -hmm. if we can find the ways to reweave or reconnect with each other at the very personal level, and then that includes with ourselves, then we are doing that fundamental work of creating and birthing a new world order and a new world um, experience for all of us. And so I see that liberation work is that simple as creating breaths or space. And one of the teachers that I follow, Lama Rod Owens, he speaks about how liberation is spaciousness, right? Mm -hmm. And so I hold that of like, how are we creating spaciousness for each other, for ourselves in little ways and really simple ways, but also in the large, like magnificent, fantastic ways. And that is a form of weaving connection because it's connecting to desire and to who we are and what we long for. And in that longing, we're connecting. So I see that as a part of my work too, as doing addiction and eating disorder recovery work. But actually, that's just the entry point. That's just the doorway in to doing the really sweet and tender and important work of liberation. Yes. I'm so grateful you're on the planet at this (laughs) time doing what you do. I can't imagine it's it's easy Mm. and it's really important and potent. And I'm just grateful. Thank you. You're here. And I really heard in just your description of who you are and what you do in this world, bringing a lot of different things together, but all of them mm-hmm. seem connected to wholeness and supporting mm-hmm. people and remembering their wholeness and yeah. contextualizing that we don't feel whole because of the systems that are in place and they're designed to make us feel disconnected and fragmented. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious to know if you, because you mentioned the possible and the impossible or the impossible and the, which way did you mention it? I wrote both down and I was like, (laughs) the possible and the impossible. That's what you mentioned. Yeah. 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 We can render the impossible possible or find the possible within the impossible. Yes. That's so funny. I was like, wait a minute. I'm (laughs) curious to know if you always knew there was a connection between the two, like that it is possible to actually manifest or remember, I don't know the word that's appropriate, Mm -hmm. things that seem impossible, right? Or to create the impossible when culture tells us the potentiality for the impossible isn't present. Did you always understand the connection that we were bigger than what culture was telling us? (laughs) Oh God, no, not at all. That's such a good question. No, I did not. I know as a child, I was told all the time, don't dream big, don't want these things because you can't have them. And it started out when I was a kid, very much around gender and bodies of you're not a boy, you can't do that. Or nope, only boys get to do that. And so there's this limitingness that was in it. And so it was like impossible to dream bigger. I want to play that sport or I want to go to this place or I want to be a leader like in this way or I want, and they're like, nope, you can't do that because obviously you're a girl. 
And so there was that restriction to that. There was also ways that when I was in grade school and junior high, I was severely bullied. One of the areas of like where I was bullied was around my race and the ways they were like, oh, you're too Chinese. You can't do that. Or you can't be here because you're not this enough or you're too much of this. And so there was ways that I saw myself as, well, my body's wrong. My race is wrong. My culture is wrong. My everything's wrong. So none of that felt possible. And so as I started to dream and wish bigger and I'm like, oh, I want these things. And I'm like dreaming into these things because what child doesn't start? Like those dreams are just a part of a growing and, and like evolving body. And that to hear and get walk, doors shut all the time, nope, can't do that, can't do that, was very stifling and extremely complicated and confusing. And I know that for me, part of my eating disorder came out of that construct, right? Of all of these no's. And it was so confusing and it created so much like tightness in my body that I had to release it and I didn't know how to release it. And for me, the eating disorder showed up as bulimia and that was a way of me like releasing it out and being like, okay, I can survive another day. Okay, release it out because I can survive another day. And In all of this, I was also raised in an evangelical Christian, very fundamentalist community. And in that space, again, the impossible resided in God. It didn't reside in us. We were not connected to that experience of the divine. God can do miracles. And if we want to be connected to any of that miracle, is we had to perform in a certain way, show up to all the prayer groups. I had to wear dresses. It was horrible. And like all these things that were just so prescriptive in order to be connected to the possibility of the divine. And so like for years, I just didn't think I could dream that big. I would try and then stop myself. And so the shame that comes out of that and the ways that I would limit myself. And I really didn't learn that this idea this, yeah, that the possible exists and resides within the impossible really until I went pretty intensely into my recovery from, from an eating disorder. And it was in that recovery, which was years. Recovery is not something that happens overnight. It's a journey. It's long. Is what allowed me to enter recovery in a really substantial way was I had to start to believe that a life without an eating disorder was possible. And the healer and my therapist, two folks that I was working with at the time, were holding me in that. Can you lean into that possibility? And for so long, my body was like, no, I don't know what that that's impossible. I can't even imagine what that world would be like, because this has been like my best friend, my like confidant, but like my person for so long, I don't know what life without it would be like or how to survive in this world without it. And yet that was the practice of recovery was having to like constantly be like, okay, what if there is that possibility? What if that possibility exists in the world and it exists for me? What if, even if I can't see it or imagine it or touch it or smell it, nothing, but what if, and that's what got me through my recovery and coming out of that, I realized just how powerful that was. It became a prayer of like, what if this is possible? And that leaning into, oh, maybe then I am possible. My existence is possible. Who I am, my wholeness. What if there's space for me? in the world. And that became the next prayer. And I think I'm still very much in that prayer. And this has been a long, like over decades of what if there is actual space for me, all of who I am Mm -hmm. in the world, 
I can't fully see it yet, but what if it's there? And what if that wholeness, what if that space for me is actually waiting for me to show up? Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. And that's what that the impossible is possible is evolving into in my daily practice now is, yeah, it's just getting more and more big. <laughs> it's, just, it's growing. <laughs> yeah. That's so beautiful process in the prayers mm-hmm. and the questions and living into them in a way by centering the prayers and being curious. And I'm still licensed as a clinical social worker, although I'm not working in that way now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and when I did, I worked a lot with folks who had body image issues, eating disorders, and many other things. And what you named about your eating disorder being your confidant, your friend, your like mm-hmm. companion, yeah. that came up all the time when I worked with clients. And I, I wonder if, do you feel like you moved through a process of grieving as you released that part of you? Or I don't know if that part's fully released or where it lives now, but yeah. it struck me as you were speaking about it. Did you grieve and honor that part of who you were, or that part that was showing up? Yeah. One of the things I was really excited about talking with you is I was like, oh, we're going to talk about grief. Because <laughs> <was> Michelle. <laughs> yeah. And, and being able to connect at that intersection, I was really excited. And I love that this is the framing of how it's coming up. But yeah, the grief around the releasing of the bulimia was... There are days I still grieve it. And my day-to-day lived experience now, the bulimia is not in my body. It's not a behavior that shows up. And yet there are days, and especially this last year in this pandemic, where the loneliness, the uncertainty, the, the grief of this time that we're all collectively living in and fuddling through, fumbling through, where I have found myself longing for that comfort and being like, wow, you were so helpful. And I'm in a place where I don't lean, I don't lean far enough into it where I'm going to go back to those behaviors, but I can remember, like my body remembers, the cells of my body remember that companionship and what it felt like to not be alone when I had bulimia with me as my like my bestie, really. <laughs> I was just like, hey, I'm here with you. There was a way that it mitigated loneliness for me. And that grief is, that was unexpected <laughs> this year to confront that in the ways that it showed up. And there's a sweetness to it as well. And I think there's something in grief that I've really encountered in the last few years. I've gone through a divorce. I've had really close friends die. I've had several cats die. There's been a lot of loss family members have passed away. As I lean into or kind of just be in the grief and it's immense grief, that there's a space where it becomes really sweet. And it's a sweetness because it's a connecting into, like we talked about earlier, that the healing work, this liberation work is about connection. And grief is about connecting me to that deep longing inside me. It also connects me to the grief of others. And so it connects my longing to the longing of others that I'm in community with or in relationship with. And there's a sweetness in that because it reminds me that also 
I'm not alone. And so there's these weird ways that even in my grief, when I'm like literally lying on the floor bawling, like it happens or curled up in a ball in my bed or even sitting on my meditation cushion, that's, I cry a lot there. (laughs) That's real. That as I'm in it, my body remembers that it's not alone in it. And that's an unexpected piece. And I think that goes back also to those cycles in the natural world of we're never alone. And I don't mean it in that woo-woo, like new agey sense of we're all one. I don't mean it in that sense at all. I mean it in the sense that there is inherent connection that is there in our breath, in our grief, especially as folks of color in this world, in our rage, in all the things and like just the emotionality of just even touching into that. That for years, I thought that's what made me have to separate and disconnect from others because I'm, I'm too angry. I'm too sad. I'm too emo all those things. And these days I'm finding that even alone in my home in a pandemic, when we're all socially isolated and I live by myself with my cat and my dog and I'm sitting on my meditation cushion, I'm so alone. And I put quotes around that. Yet I feel the most connected in that grief and in that rage and in that, in my breath, in that moment, because I know it's not an isolated sensation. It's not an isolated experience. And that's where that grief and longing for the eating disorder transforms into this sweetness that reminds me that, no, just sit here a little bit longer. The connection is there, that like liberatory breath that I'm longing for, the like collective exhale that I'm waiting for. It always shows up. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that and about the sweetness that you've experienced through allowing yourself to grieve and really turning toward it and understanding that's not an isolated experience. A lot of people are feeling what you just named, perhaps not acknowledging it, perhaps they are, right? Touching Mm -hmm. into that tenderness. And it also sounds like just, I mean, there's the pandemic, but that a lot of other loss has occurred. in your life. And I'm curious to know, in addition to the sweetness, the experience of that, what lessons you are learning from allowing yourself to grieve? Mm. Teachings, maybe not lessons, whatever word resonates. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's so much. I think the first thing that comes up is just to feel it. That grief is an invitation to feel to touch into something that is or has felt forbidden in the past. It's an invitation to be with the parts of myself that maybe I don't like still, or maybe I am like, I don't think, I don't want to admit that you're still here, (laughs) parts of myself. And it's some days it feels like sitting with a child who is like really disappointed, who just, had their hopes so high and then they got shattered for whatever reason. And so some days sitting with my grief feels like that. And some days it feels like it's going to break me. And those days are hard. Right? And it's that reminder of, okay, if I'm always whole, then what is broken mean? And this is not the hardest thing I've been through. Maybe it isn't, but I'm also resourced in my practice 
resourced in my spirituality and resourced that I have a team and crew of healers all around me who hold me. And that is a reminder that sometimes it's as scary as it is to touch into that grief. I can go there. And then there's days I'm like, hell no, it's just not going to happen today. And that's okay. Giving myself permission to be like, fuck no. We're not, no, it's just no. <laughs> yeah. And it's that both and. And there are days like that where I'm just like, yeah, that's, that's not going to happen. Uh-uh. And reminding myself again, going back to this piece of the cycles that we live and breathe in cycles and that things pass and things get really hard and things get really amazing and sweet and like possible. And then it becomes impossible again. And like we can move through the cycles of that. Things are always growing like those sprouts of sunflowers that are in my backyard that I didn't even know. And I have an altar in my backyard that I sit at each morning when it's not raining, which in LA is pretty much every day. And so I go out there and sit and this is not next to the bird feeder, but there's a sunflower sprout like directly on the ground in front of where my Buddha sits. And I was like, oh, okay. This is magical. Who put this here? What like magical bird brought this here? And just reminding myself that there's so many forces at play that I don't even know about, that I can't even see. And so if I like get completely consumed by my grief, I'm only seeing one piece of what's happening. And I absolutely need to feel that grief and touch into that grief and move through it. It's a journey through. It's not that destination where I'm like, oh, stuck, I'm trapped, even though it feels like that at times. But to also remember that like what you were saying earlier, just looking up and you're like, oh, there's the crow and the hawk. We can look up, we can have that larger view. There's so much else going on that is absolutely for us and is absolutely not for us, but it is absolutely us. If that makes sense. Like it's that all that is and kind of magnificent. I don't entirely remember and what I'm answering or where I'm going with this, but I'm just now just feeling into that sense of wonder that emerges when we step back and lift our heads up or look into the sky, look at the earth, look at the natural world around us. And I say this, even as somebody who lives like in East LA and it's like super urban and there's a lot of concrete around me and asphalt. I don't live in the woods and I don't live out in a more rural space. And yet the natural world, yeah, that's cool, but I'm still going to be here. I'm still going to show up because it is all of who we are. It is the breath of the earth itself that we can try to squelch it and hide it and get rid of it. But it's no, I'm still going to grow. I'm still going to go through my cycles. And if I can remember that wisdom and that like perseverance and that dogheadedness is a part of who I am because I'm a part of the natural world. You're a part of the natural world. We're all a part of that larger, all that is. And that means we're possible. And that means my grief is not wrong. There's nothing wrong with my grief. My grief is a part of that cycle. Crows go through their own form of grief, right? Animals do this. Elephants do this. And so when we think about grief as something we need to overcome or something we need to fix or control or minimize, don't let anyone see you cry. What the fuck is that? I cry all the time. Grief is natural. And if it's as natural as like a sprout breaking through the soil, nobody questions whether that's good or bad. Grief is a part of us being alive. And so that's what I like try to remind myself by constantly when I'm in those places where I feel like it's going to break me or it's going to take me out or it's going to consume me completely, that 
I look up and even just looking up now, I see these plants that are in my home that are just like, yeah, you just exist. Look, there's sun. We're going through our cycles. And some of my going through a grief process right now because some of my house plants that have been with me for a while, a few of them have just been like, nope, we're done and died. And I was like, what is happening? Like, why are you dying? What did I do wrong? You were alive for so long. We had such a good like rapport and then you died. And for me, it's just, oh, cycles. That doesn't mean I'm wrong. I can learn through this. I think this is the lesson or the teaching in grief is that it's not about being right or wrong. It's about being present for it and showing up as it shows up for me. And grief is a teacher. And it's funny, as we're talking right now, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, what if grief becomes my friend? What does that mean? Yeah. In Buddhist practice, we talk about befriending the hard emotions, right? Befriending our anger, befriending our loneliness and befriending our grief. This is just coming up right now, but this idea of not just befriending it, but what if it actually becomes my friend? And I think that's a very different thing. We can befriend our neighbors, but do they become your friends that you like let in or invite in into closer space with us? And to be to have a friend, I'm like, be intimate with me. Share intimacy with my heart. Do I let my grief in there? It shows up and I'm like, fine, you're here. I'm going to be with you. What would it be like if I was like, oh, yo, grief, I see you sitting over there. You're, hey, Sid, you want to talk? And I'm like, no. And then, <laughs> but maybe, what if I invited it in closer? What if? What could that practice look like? That sounds, that I'm intrigued by that. <laughs> I am too. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for the space to like emerge. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's so powerful. And the difference between befriending, becoming friends with, right? Yeah. The, the distinction you made there and allowing grief to developing an intimate relationship with it and allowing it to be part of your process because it yeah. already is. It's right. present anyway, from what you said, it's present for everyone, even when they don't know it or can't be with it right. or cannot befriend it. Yeah. And this is, it's making me curious about the moment we're in. I've just mm-hmm. never experienced tenderness like this. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is tender. There are moments when I, it happened the other day, I was on the floor. I don't know what I was doing actually, but I was on the floor and I started to tear up and I was like, oh, you're feeling the world. Like you're just feeling the world's grief. Yes. You're grieving and you're feeling this. It wasn't heavy. It was just tender with sorrow. And yeah, I've had other moments like that since this pandemic and all of the things, it's not just specific to the pandemic, but that's like the perfect storm for everything to come up in my experience. And so I, I am curious about both the meaning of this moment, the meaning you're making and the grief that we are collectively we're carrying that we're holding that we're, we're either connecting with or holding at bay. I don't know what people are doing with it, but. Yeah. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, we're a year in, right? <laughs> year into this pandemic. And I think a lot of us that I've seen, like reflections on social media, reflections with and conversations I've had with friends recently with myself is, where was I a year ago? And I was traveling. I was in this place. I was in this place. And there was a lot of access to life and worlds and spaces that we don't have access to, that we've had to learn how to adapt to not having access to in this last year. And there's just so much there in that question. I think where I land often is that if I think about this in a larger context where this is about the earth itself, right? Like we were talking about a larger collective. 
And when I talk about all, and I talk about us, I'm talking about us as human beings. I'm talking about the animal world. We're a part of that. I'm talking about the plant world. I'm talking about the earth, the planet itself. Like it's not just humans, right? Like we're that larger collective of being. And I really hear in this moment, the earth saying things are not working. How we have been trying to live on this planet is not sustainable. And there had to be a disruption of that. And I'm not just talking about climate and I'm not just talking about the intense rates of extinction that are happening around the world, around in the animal kingdom and, and insect kingdom, all of those communities. And I'm also talking about political structures, right? Like how we have created systems to be with each other, but it's not sustainable. It's just not. And when I get really quiet, I can hear that there is wisdom in this moment, in this forced pause that this pandemic has offered. And I'm not saying that I'm grateful for, yay, we had this virus that killed people. I'm not saying that at all. I want to be really clear that I'm not saying that this is a good thing. I'm saying this is a thing that has invited those who are willing to listen, the invitation to stop, to redirect, to reconsider how we're showing up in the world, who we're being, and to really breathe life or new life into how we want to be moving forward. Who do we want to be as individuals, as a collective body? Who do we want to be moving forward? And I think that question for me is coming up in all the spaces. And for me personally, it's showing up in who do I want to be as an organizer? Who do I want to be as someone committed to healing justice in the world? Who do I want to be as someone committed to Black liberation in this world? Who do I need to be in those commitments? And who do I need to be as a Buddhist, as a queer and trans person, as somebody who is moving towards eldership <laughs> or as you know our friend Vivette as you mentioned earlier <laughs> as Vivette has shared with me she's getting ready you're preparing for mm-hmm. eldership and I'm like ah I don't know that's scary but this is a moment to like pause and to feel into that I'm going to be 50 in two years what does that mean I feel so weird to even think about and so this moment has been in unexpected pause, right? It hasn't been comfortable in so many ways. And yet it's been so generative in that pauses allow for growth to happen. Pauses allow for healing to happen. Pauses allow for a redirect or a refocus to happen. When we're going all the time, we don't get that space to be in contemplation of who am I being in this moment. And so 
for me, this last year has been in a way a forced spiritual retreat. (laughs) And I say forced because I wasn't, I was not, that was not what was on my mind. This is what I'm going to do right now. It showed up and it was like, I get to choose. Do I fight this? Because this is what is. Or do I be with this? And in being with this, I was like, oh, okay. If this is an invitation to go deeper into my practice, Mm -hmm. then how do I show up for that? And how do I show up for that with others, with myself? Yeah. And that invitation, that's where that grief was like, ooh, you just open the door a little bit wider. I get to come in more. And I'm like, damn it. And the grief gets to come in. The loneliness gets to come in. But also what we talked about is that tenderness that you mentioned and the sweetness. And this has been a time where a deep isolation and separation and loneliness. And yet I have met and started like nurturing some amazing new friendships and connections that are blowing my mind. Mm-hmm. And these are folks that I've met during this pandemic or have reconnected to during this mm-hmm. pandemic and being completely like just blown away by the ways that there's intimacy that can emerge out of a seemingly separate distance, virtual, right? Yeah. (laughs) Moment Mm -hmm. in our history. And it's humbling because again, it goes back to, I'm not the one in control. My work is to show up. My practice is, can I show up in my wholeness? Can I give myself permission to show up in that wholeness? And this moment has given me like that pause and the possibility to practice that. Mm -hmm. And I will also say, as I'm looking down another year of this pandemic, yeah, fuck that. <laughs> I'm just, I just don't <laughs> want to do that for another year. There's also that. <laughs> it's like, I'm exhausted. This work is also exhausting and existing yeah. in this moment is exhausting. And existing in this moment when the violence against Asian Americans is increasing, and especially against our elders in this moment, and the violence against Black folks is increasing. And the anti-immigrant rhetoric is increased, like all of this, it's exhausting, right? And yet, if things aren't working, it has to become so clear of what's not working so that that can die off, that can slough off. So something new, those seedlings in my backyard can break through. And that's what's coming. And I know it, I can feel it, I can sense it. And it's so uncomfortable waiting for it. But the more of us who can use this time and really show up for whatever this new world, for collective liberation, what that new world requires of us and is asking of us, then those seedlings, those little sprouts will show up and they will take over. And this new landscape where we all can thrive and we all can be free will start to emerge. And I hold to that. And I hold that possibility because there are things that have shown up in this pandemic that I don't think would have shown up in any other time politically or Mm -hmm. socially. That's right. That's right. Where we see the defunding of police systems, where we see abolition aspects of it happening. Mm -hmm. When before this moment, people are like, that's never, that's never going to happen. It's happening. Mm -hmm. And we're like, but we're still going to believe it. We're still going to lean into it. And here we get to start to lean in and be like, oh, see, I see that sprout. That's powerful. And I want to hold to that and 
and like appreciate that again, that this moment is an invitation to revision, to rethink, to recenter my commitments of liberation, of being in solidarity with others and to show up in my wholeness. Thank you for the medicine. Hmm. One thing that came through is that we are the seedlings breaking through the soil, sprouting. Like, yes, yeah. they're in your backyard. And, and <laughs> the way you talked about showing up, it's also, what if it's us? Yeah. What if we're the seeds? And I think we are. It's why we're alive <gasps> oh, I right love now. that. <laughs> it just made me think of, we're that. the seeds too, right? We're like the, those of us who are yes. like, we want to be free. We want everyone to be free. We're the seeds yeah. that will grow and create the world you're talking about and imagining growing up. So thank you for the medicine. Yeah. yeah thank you for that. Yeah. I'm going to go, when we're done today, I'm going to go out and talk to the seedlings some more. <laughs> and yeah. They're like, you're listen. so wise. You have so much wisdom. <laughs> listen to what they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to share before we pause our time together? I say that on purpose mm-hmm. because it's not an ending, but right. is there anything else you want to share with folks? You share a lot of medicine, but thank you. I think I just want to just name again that piece that came up because I think it was unexpected for me in our conversation around grief of, yeah, what would it be like to invite it in as a friend? I had a session with a healer that I work with this morning and they're one of the people, thankfully, who are holding me through this time. And this question came up of how I can invite people in more as a response to my loneliness and not necessarily just waiting. I'm like, who's going to show up, but actually actively inviting in. And I really am sitting with that piece around inviting the grief in, but thinking about what else can I be inviting in, right? That this, we talked about this moment as an invitation for us to show up in whatever ways we are needing to show up, but what's the active role that I can be taking to invite in intimacy with me into to the spaces in my heart. And it's not just the grief. I'm sure there's more, but yeah. So leaving with that question of who or what can I be inviting in closer to me? Even if it's uncomfortable, right? Probably the discomfort is probably a good sign to lean in a little further, but who and what can I be inviting in and who and what can you be inviting in? Mm-hmm. What's to you? And how is that creating more wholeness for all of us? Because that actually is a practice of reconnection and connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the offering, the question to sit with and for everything you shared and everything you are on this planet yes. at this Thank time. You. Such an honor to spend time with you in this way. I'm really appreciative and thank you for being with me today. Thank you so much for the space and for just who you are in the world. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Finding Refuge. You can support Finding Refuge by sharing it with your friends, family members, and beloveds and rating it on iTunes. You can support my work by becoming a patron on Patreon. My name on Patreon is Skill in Action. Thank you so much and take care, friends.